Good morning. In today's headlines, Hunter Biden was in the spotlight yesterday as IRS whistleblowers testified before lawmakers. Meanwhile, Representative James Comer accused the Bidens of running an influence peddling scheme. The Senate yesterday took a step toward making a NATO withdrawal more difficult. It's a response to comments made by former President Trump while he was in office. 24 years of persecution from the CCP in China. A special report on the persecution of Falun Gong premieres today on NTD. We take a quick look before its release. It seems cancellation can sometimes be good for business. After country music television pulled the video for country song Try That in a Small Town, it shot up to number one on iTunes. And a young classical pianist is doing what he can to inspire younger generations to value classical music, and he's taken to the streets. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Today is Thursday, July 20th, and our top news is new whistleblower testimony by IRS investigators on Capitol Hill yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details on the allegedly slow-walked investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. IRS criminal supervisory agent Gary Shapley testified that the handling of the Hunter Biden tax investigation was very different from any other case in his 14 years at the IRS. At every stage, decisions were made that benefited the subject of this investigation. Shapley says prosecutors concealed contents of Hunter Biden's laptop from investigators and never pursued search warrants. IRS whistleblower and special agent Joseph Ziegler testified that Hunter Biden's accountants requested he sign a representation letter stating that all the deductions claimed were for business purposes. But Ziegler says statements made in his memoir completely contradicted what he was deducting as business expenses on his 2018 tax return. While writing his memoir, Hunter stated, I holed up inside the chateau for the first six weeks and learned how to cook crack. The whistleblower continued that Biden allegedly falsely claimed business deductions for payments made to the chateau. A hotel room for his supposed drug dealer, sex club memberships, falsely referenced on the wire as a golf membership, hotels he was blacklisted from. Ziegler also states Hunter Biden did not report income earned from the Ukrainian company Burisma for the 2014 tax year. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer broke down the investigation into the Biden family. The Bidens created over 20 shell companies, most of which were created when Joe Biden was vice president. Comer says bank records show the Biden family, their business associates, and their companies received over $10 million from foreign nationals, adding that the family used associates' companies to receive millions of dollars from foreign companies in China, Ukraine, and Romania. What were the Bidens selling? Nothing but influence and access to the Biden network. This is an influence peddling scheme to enrich the Bidens. Democratic Congressman Kowazi Mfume called the hearing a distraction, saying the biggest investigation in the nation's history is the one against former President Donald Trump. But we're spending our time talking about Hunter Biden, someone who is already pleaded guilty to not filing his taxes, having a gun charge. Hunter Biden has agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and to enter a pretrial diversion program to avoid a gun charge. Republicans are calling it a sweetheart deal. 
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Also in the political sphere, a bipartisan pair of senators is proposing a ban on stock ownership for certain government officials. Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Republican Josh Hawley are introducing the bill. It would prohibit lawmakers, senior executive branch officials, and their spouses and children from trading individual company stocks. There is no exception for blind trusts, which allow another person complete control over an investment. However, investing in mutual funds will still be allowed. The bill imposes heavy penalties for officials who break the rules. As Senator Hawley put it, politicians and civil servants shouldn't spend their time day trading and trying to make a profit at the expense of the American public. Turning now to immigration, the Biden administration is defending its new asylum rule. It told a federal judge it's not simply a rehash of a Trump-era rule. That judge blocked former President Trump's efforts to ensure only migrants arriving at designated points of entry can seek asylum. Biden's policy requires migrants seeking asylum to do one of two things, either use a government app to make an appointment or arrive having sought asylum in a country they passed through on their way to the U.S., The policy was implemented on May 11th as Title 42 ended. Immigration rights groups are suing to have the rule removed. They say it's harmful to migrants and is illegal. Meanwhile, congressional Republicans are criticizing the administration, saying it's failing to control the southern border. And we're bringing in Victor Avila, retired special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, ICE. He joins us live to help make sense of all this. Thanks for coming on the show today, Victor. Biden's administration says this new rule prevents chaos at the border and sets the stage for migrants to use legal means to enter the U.S. Is that the case in your view and why or why not? Uh, I think what it does is that it'll help prevent death. It'll help prevent uh, rapes. It'll help prevent these people from drowning in the river. Um, and so you're never going to hear the Biden administration give credit to the Trump administration for those policies that showed that worked, um, the Remain in Mexico policy, the uh, seek asylum at their first safe third country. Um, uh, They can call it whatever they want, but they are starting to acknowledge that those policies were working. Now, as far as uh, making the migrants use the CBP-1 app, I myself have found that they don't want to do that. They rather come in between the ports of entry through the river uh, because the app has had a lot of problems, a lot of issues, and they don't want to put all their information on there. A lot of them, some still do it, but most of them rather not go through that process. And one thing I want to make clear, all these processes that we're talking about and the administration uh, trying to bring people in through a legal pathway, it's completely illegal because it doesn't follow existing immigration law and our constitution. So the Biden administration has insisted that its policy is different from Trump's and that's because it grants exceptions for legal pathways like we mentioned and humanitarian parole, of course, for nationals from select countries. What's your assessment of this? Well, listen, I have the authority as a special agent to uh, issue these humanitarian paroles for law enforcement reasons or for uh, public benefit. And um, you can't can't mix uh, public benefit paroles with asylum criteria and allowing people in uh, using one system uh, to circumvent the other. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, the, we know that the majority of the, uh, the people coming into this country illegally do not qualify for asylum. And so that's why the Trump administration's policies worked. Uh, we wanted to vet the individuals, vet the information that they were providing. If in fact they were gonna qualify, then we would let them in. 
but that has completely been reversed by this administration that we're supposed to be doing that while they're already in the country. Well, you have 7 million people or more in that in those conditions, and it's going to come a day where they're going to have to answer to those uh, claims, and uh, the backlog is just incredible that uh, we're going to have to start doing something about that, to, especially with the criminal element that in, infiltrates themselves into these systems and taking advantage to get access into our country. And Victor, zooming out here a little bit, what can you tell us about this other new policy in which migrants from Central America or Colombia can fly into the United States under these legal means, supposedly? You see, this, this one just kicked in by the Biden administration uh, a little bit under the radar, uh, allowing uh, people from uh, Central America and Colombia to fly in directly into the United States if they have a U.S. citizen, a family member, or a lawful permanent resident alien uh, family member. Uh, again, no vetting here. Who's vetting the, the status of the family member, uh, who, which we also will call a sponsor? Uh, this is not the correct way or, or the legal pathway to enter this country. That's another way that this administration, the Biden administration, the Department of Homeland Security through Alejandro Mayorkas is allowing uh, these uh, individuals to circumvent existing law and gain access into our country. It's very simple. All we have to do is go back to enforce our actual laws that were legislatively passed by our Congress and start enforcing them. Well, vetting is very important here to ensure public security. Victor Avila, former ICE agent, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And more on immigration, New York City plans to distribute flyers at the U.S.-Mexico border. They'll tell newly arrived illegal immigrants to consider another city and to limit shelter stays to 60 days. That's the city is struggling to house the new arrivals. The office of Mayor Eric Adams announced the plan yesterday, saying the flyers would honestly communicate New York's situation to those coming to the city and that the city would help migrants find other housing and, quote, take the next step in their journey. New York City says it's provided services to 90,000 migrants since last spring and that nearly 55,000 remain in its care. The flyer will also highlight the high cost of housing, food and other necessities illegal immigrants will encounter if they travel to the Big Apple. It reads in English and Spanish, please consider another city as you make your decision about where to settle in the U.S. The Senate yesterday took a step toward preventing a president from backing the U.S. out of NATO. Senators voted 65 to 28 in favor of an amendment to the annual defense spending bill. It says the president cannot suspend or withdraw the United States from the NATO treaty without two-thirds of senators voting in favor of such a move. Former President Trump in 2018 threatened to withdraw the U.S. from NATO. That was if member states did not start paying what they agreed to pay on defense spending, which is 2% of their annual gross domestic product. That was an amount agreed to in 2014. However, many countries have not met that goal. Senator Tim Kaine introduced the amendment along with Senator Marco Rubio. Kaine said yesterday U.S. allies would take this statement of congressional support in a very powerful way. And just ahead, the Biden administration is reaching out to North Korea over the U.S. soldier who fled there. More details are coming out about the soldier and how he crossed the border. Are U.S. venture capital firms funding the Chinese regime's military and AI development? A House committee is demanding answers from a list of companies. We'll have that for you after the break.
Welcome back. We have more updates on the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea and was detained there on Tuesday. The Biden administration is working to establish communications with the North Korean regime. We've had no contact at this point. The North Korean regime has been silent about the case of U.S. Army Private Second Class Travis King, who willingly crossed into the country during a tour of the demilitarized zone on Tuesday. The U.S. State Department provided the latest updates on Wednesday. That the administration has and will continue to actively work to ensure his safety and return him home to his family. In terms of contacts with foreign governments, yesterday the Pentagon reached out to counterparts in the Korean People's Army. Uh, my understanding is that those, uh, uh, those communications have not yet been answered. We retain a number of channels through which we can send messages to the DPRK. 23-year-old King joined the military in 2021. According to a court document and a lawyer who represented him, King faced two assault allegations in South Korea and was fined by a South Korean court for damaging a police car last year. U.S. officials said King had finished serving time in detention in South Korea and was due to return to his home unit in the U.S. It was unclear how he joined the tour of the demilitarized zone. A woman who was in the same tour group said people were stunned by what King did. People were just taking photos and not really doing much. Um, and then I suddenly noticed that there was a guy dressed in black running very, very fast um, towards sort of in a curved line towards the North Korean border. Um, and at first I thought, uh, like, what is going on? At about that time, one of the American soldiers shouted, get him, and the American and South Korean soldiers chased after him, but he was going so fast and so close to the border by that point that they couldn't, they didn't catch him. The motive behind King's action remains unclear. King is believed to be the first U.S. soldier to cross into North Korea since 1982 and the first known American detained in North Korea in nearly five years. Most Americans held by North Korea in the past were sentenced to years of hard labor, but freed after high-level diplomacy. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Affirmative action and diversity training in the U.S. military. A hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday addressed these issues. The superintendents of three military academies testified. Here's the story. The House Subcommittee on Military Personnel held a hearing Wednesday on affirmative action and diversity programs in U.S. military academies. Chair of the subcommittee Jim Banks said he's against affirmative action and diversity, equity and inclusion, or DEI, training. I believe race-based omissions in any form violate the Constitution and the military service academies must ensure immutable characteristics like race, like color, have no bearing on a candidate's ability to tackle the rigors of the military service academy. The superintendents of the U.S. Military Academy, Naval Academy, and Air Force Academy testified. They defended the military's approach. We must also embrace our diversity as a strength. Our military is comprised of people from every congressional district, every community, and every demographic in America. And our cadets will have to lead people who don't look like them, don't think like them, don't talk like them. Republican Congressman Matt Gates challenged the superintendent of the Air Force Academy over a program the academy is promoting called the Brooke Owens Fellowship. The fellowship is only available to women and gender minorities, including non-binary, demigender, and agender individuals. Do you know what demigender really means? Uh, I'm not really sure, sir. Right. So do you know what agender means? All one word, not a space gender, but agender. Uh, sir, I don't. Right. So here we are 
pushing a fellowship, calling for people that you don't even know what the words mean, and the number one group of people, the cisgender men, are excluded. Democrats on the subcommittee, meanwhile, voiced support for the military's diversity programs. It's advantageous to us in order to embrace diversity, number one. Number two, it makes us stronger to embrace diversity. And number three, our country is diverse, so we should reflect that diversity. The Supreme Court's decision last month striking down affirmative action in college admissions in part prompted the hearing. Military academies are exempt from the ruling. However, House Republicans added amendments to the Defense Authorization Act that would end DEI training and affirmative action in the military. Are U.S. venture capital firms funding the development of China's military and AI? That's what the House Select Committee and the Chinese Communist Party has decided to find out. Committee leaders sent letters to four American firms demanding to know the extent of their dealings with the CCP. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. The House Select Committee on the CCP is launching investigations into several U.S. companies that it claims are funding the Chinese regime's development of artificial intelligence and military modernization. Committee Chair Mike Gallagher and Ranking Member Raja Krishnamurthy sent letters to the leaders of four American venture capital firms expressing serious concern about their investments in AI, microchip, and quantum computing companies in China. The letters were sent to GGV Capital, GST Ventures, Qualcomm Ventures, and Walden International. The lawmakers request the leadership for each fund answer a series of questions about their investments in Chinese companies. That includes what companies they are investing in, the dollar amounts of each investment, their policies concerning investments in such companies, what course of action the funds would take if companies they invested in were sanctioned by the U.S., and the role the CCP plays in each company. Gallagher told NTD's Sam Wong the most complex aspects of competition with China are economic and technological issues. Figuring out, you know, what is the line for selective decoupling, figuring out how we don't subsidize our own destruction. These are very, very difficult things to do. And so the more we have an open debate like this, I think it refines our thinking and increases the chance that we'll arrive at a durable legislative solution. Gallagher says the goal of the investigation is to create a record that can help Congress pass a strong bill to stop problematic investments in Chinese companies. Nazak Nikektar, the former Undersecretary for Industry and Security at the U.S. Department of Commerce, says if the U.S. wants its allies to follow it in countering the Chinese regime, it needs to clearly define its terms and lead by example. Our allies are watching us, and if our rules have loopholes, right, then they're going to know that they can move in the same way, kind of develop these rules that ultimately mean nothing. If we really are to get our allies on board, then we need to have ironclad rules and expect to do the same. The letter sent to the four U.S. firms says some of the companies receiving U.S. money are linked to the persecution and ongoing genocide of Uyghurs in China. Gallagher says the probe into the four firms is the beginning of a broader investigation. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And on the topic of persecution, today marks 24 years since the Chinese Communist Party began its persecution of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa. The Chinese regime launched its brutal campaign in China on July 20, 1999. The ongoing persecution includes forced labor, torture, and forced live organ harvesting. We have a special report on the issue premiering today. Here's a quick look. Falun Gong, it really was somewhat of a renaissance in that after decades of communist rule, where they're trying to stamp out all traditional beliefs, all traditional culture, along comes Falun Gong that's really 
harkens back to the traditional ways of China and really a spiritual tradition. And I think that really resonated with Chinese people. And so even after just seven years, 100 million people were practicing Falun Gong throughout, uh, throughout China. Right now in China, and for the last 15 years, is the largest civil disobedience movement in the world. That is, tens of millions of Falun Gong people every day are creating an underground media, leaflets, pamphlets about the persecution they face, about the terrible history of the CCP, and usually undercover at night, they're leaving it on doorsteps. And this is happening all over China. Big cities, small villages, and everything in between. And so there is a tremendous groundswell in China to let the people know what the true history of the regime is, what's really happening to Falun Gong, and that's creating a lot of awareness. China was not a player in the organ transplant business at all until they had hundreds of thousands of Falun Gong practitioners as detainees. And then suddenly, just over a few years, they skyrocketed to become one of the leading destinations for organ transplant operations. If the word gets out on what's really happened to those folks, I think in the minds of the CCP, that's an existential threat. They don't want their dirty laundry aired in Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Tibet, but that's not going to topple the regime. I think in their minds, if the true scope and scale of what they've done to Falun Gong, their own people, all throughout their own country, really comes out, they see that as an existential threat. And that's why it's, it's the top of their list in terms of the human rights issues. They want silence. If you look at inside China, I mean, really Falun Gong, it's not a political group, never has been, never wanted to be. It's about people who want to just be better people. But having that group of people, that kind of force inside China, those are the true, that's the heartland. That's the real Chinese people. That's the real culture. And I think that's the future. And I think if, you know, America can embrace that and distinguish that from the ruling CCP, you're going to have a much better China on the world stage. The special report premieres at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on Epic TV and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on NTD. There's also a rally to end the persecution being held in Washington, D.C. today, followed by a parade. We'll have live coverage of the events starting at noon Eastern Time, so join us for that. And war coverage coming up. Russia continues to bombard Ukrainian port cities with airstrikes after President Putin backed out of the grain deal, so stay with us. Ten years ago, my mom was behind bars, and my father was trying his best to save my mom. Ten years later, my father is behind bars. My mom and I are trying our best to save my father. The policeman threatened to jail and told me, he even told me, it would be a shame for your baby to grow up without a mother. I'm in U.S., my father is in China. This whole government, with all the power and with all the money, are persecuting my father, and I'm, I'm, I'm just nobody. They're using humans as guinea pigs to supply organs, either for their own domestic supply or to export them. There is evidence of genocide here. They're unspeakable. These things are unspeakable. They say, well, maybe this is not affecting United States citizens. It definitely is. It definitely is. And I think that the creep happens very, very quickly if you let it, because they want us to be more like them, not them to be more like us. It should concern everybody in America that they're penetrating that far into the middle of our country. 
we are collaborating with a regime that's on a par with the Nazis, and we are profiting by that. If that hand was being extended to you with the blood on it, would you be so willing to extend your hand in friendship or in business partnership or even in diplomatic partnership? So the big moral question of our time, are we going to do the right thing or are we going to suffer that same persecution? It's good to have you back with us. Russia struck residential buildings on Thursday in a third straight night of bombardments of Ukrainian ports. It also issued a new threat against Ukraine-bound vessels. The U.S. said it means Moscow might attack civilian ships and said Russia was releasing new mines into the sea. This comes days after Russia pulled out of the grain deal on Monday. Kyiv is hoping to resume exports without Russia's participation. On Wednesday, Ukraine said it was setting up an alternative route via the waters of its neighbor Romania, a NATO member. But no ships have sailed from Ukrainian ports since then. Insurers have doubts about underwriting policies for trade in a war zone. Since quitting the deal, Moscow has rained missiles down nightly on Ukraine's two biggest port cities. Thursday's strikes appear to be the worst yet, with authorities reporting at least 19 people wounded. And now some short headlines from around the world. Hundreds of protesters stormed and set alight the Swedish embassy in Baghdad this morning following reports of a planned burning of the Quran in Stockholm. The Swedish foreign ministry said all embassy staff were safe and condemned the attack. At least two people and an armed attacker were killed in a shooting in Auckland, New Zealand. It came just hours ahead of the opening of the Women's Soccer World Cup and took place near hotels where players were staying. Authorities said the tournament would proceed as planned as there's no national security risk. Belarus said today Wagner mercenaries have started training Belarusian special forces just a few miles from the border of NATO member Poland. It comes after Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was reportedly shown in a video welcoming his fighters to Belarus. Just ahead, will schools be defunded for removing sexually explicit books? That's what some fear as a new coordinator is appointed to the Biden Education Department targeting what they call book bans. We hear some pushback from an advocate. A Girl Scouts chapter has some unusual statements in its camp culture code. One says, I acknowledge that white people benefit from unearned privileges based on skin color. NTD spoke with American Heritage Girls founder Patty Garibay. Welcome back. More colleges are putting an end to legacy admissions. This comes after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action college admissions last month. The two latest schools to drop legacy admissions are Wesleyan University, a private liberal arts university in Middletown, Connecticut, and Carnegie Mellon University, a private research university in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This means they will no longer consider a student applicant's relationships with alumni in the admissions process. Legacy admissions have come under scrutiny following the Supreme Court ruling. Some claim it's an unfair advantage for wealthy students. A study by Education Reform Now found that 10% to 25 
5% of those admitted to top universities are legacy admits. More on education. Conservatives are alleging the Biden administration is targeting schools that have pulled sexually explicit books from their shelves. The White House's recent efforts suggest the federal government could revoke funding from schools that do this. I spoke to an advocate on this. Take a look. Joining me now is Alexis Spiegelman, Chapter Chair for Moms for Liberty. Alexis, thank you for making the time today. What's your response to the Biden administration's creating this new coordinator to address book bans in schools across the United States? Well, I think it's interesting given that um, 60% of fourth graders in America uh, cannot read at grade level. So given that this is the Department of Education, you would think if they're going to create a position or hone in on an issue, it would be the fact that we spend as much as we do as a nation and the outcome that we're getting um, as taxpayers is is not, it's not sufficient. Um, so I also think that um, we need to really define the terms here. People are calling this book banning. Um, nobody's banning any books. We pay for not only our public education locally, um, but we also have public libraries that we fund. So if, if a book is not being made available in a school, parents have the, the ability to go to their public library, and as they have for many years, um, and get their child a library card. Many of these things are available digitally. The, the bottom line is that's the parent's role. So if a parent wants to make this book available to their child, that is their prerogative. But it's also the right of the parent that doesn't want them to have um, access to some of it's just downright pornographic, you know, like um, we, there's one book that has been uh, in Florida schools uh, that a child is depicted giving oral sex to another child. I, I don't understand what the purpose of that is in our schools and what educational value that that would have. And Alexis, I understand your concerns here about the administration would probably want to address those academic scores first. Do you consider the administration's interpretation of Title IX to include transgender protections an act of pushing an ideology or legitimately protecting civil rights? Well, it's really interesting if you think about it because um, Title IX does not cover gender ideology. And thank God for, you know, the attorney general in Texas, for example, who's going to, to push back on this misinterpretation. Um, that's what we need to see happen across the country, is parents and legislators really pushing back against this attempt to um, redefine what Title IX means. Um, but also, you know, 90% of the money that goes to fund public education comes from the state and local government. Only 7% comes from the federal government. And by the way, that's our money. They take our money and then give it back to us, okay? But the 7% that comes from the federal government predominantly goes to fund disadvantaged and children that are part of one of the actual protected classes in Title IX. So it's interesting. It's, it's just kind of uh, more projection from the left, you know, accusing schools of discriminating against protected classes while creating an imaginary protected class and disproportionately impacting or threatening to impact literal classes that are in Title IX, covered in Title IX. And just in 10 seconds here, what is Moms for Liberty doing about all this? Well, we have been 
working with our legislators and trying to get bills passed like you saw in Texas, you know, there's no reason that this shouldn't just be illegal. We don't need to give porn to children. Um, and then, you know, holding at our local level, because as I said, schools are meant to be run locally, um, pushing back and, and, and advocating for what your community would like done in your school. That is why school, the Department of Education is there's there are calls to get rid of it because it is not a constitutionally created office. Schools were always meant to be run locally and parents need to get involved and determine and call for what they want in their local schools. Well, I can definitely see you're taking a very strong stance in this issue. Alexis Spiegelman, chapter chair for Moms for Liberty, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. More news surrounding the youth. The Girl Scouts are in the spotlight. Some say the organization has abandoned its traditions and is catering to an extremely progressive agenda. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with Patty Garibay, founder and executive director of American Heritage Girls. Patty Garibay says the Girl Scouts were formed around a promise that included an oath to God. But in 1993, she says the Girl Scouts decided to leave that oath behind in the name of diversity. When you kick God out, you kick out his tenets and, and his truth. And um, your character development program is now based on social mores that change as the shifting winds do as well. And so what, what is that basis of truth for you to um, help girls navigate the world? And when you don't have that, it, it's a very confusing world. Garibay says today's Girl Scouts have become very involved in pushing a so-called woke agenda. The Girl Scouts Camp Culture Code for Eastern Massachusetts says, if you are someone who is not open to participation in anti-racism and LGBTQIA allyship work, our camp programs are not a good fit for you and your child. The Camp Code has two key term sections. One has diversity, inclusion, equity, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and ableism. The other, sexual identity terms like sex assigned at birth, gender expansive, non-binary, and cisgender. On race, the code says, I acknowledge that white people benefit from unearned privileges based on skin color. And on staff, the code says, our staff reflect a spectrum of gender identities. Garibay describes the dangerous results of such a code in practice. There's been people calling us saying, you know, we had biological boys undressing our Daisy, which are five-year-old girls um, during camp because they were the camp counselor. And that is just scary. I mean, whether you're saying you're identifying or you're just creepy, I don't know which it is, but it's just not wholesome. On the topic of religion, the camp code says it is only discussed at camp if the topic comes up organically adding that staff are trained to supervise these conversations between campers and ensure that they remain respectful. So moving on from the Girl Scouts, can you tell me something about your organization, American Heritage Girls? American Heritage Girls is thriving. Parents are looking for places for their daughters where they can grow in their identity. In Christ, we are Christ-centered. They are also able to understand what it's like to be a woman and that it's okay to be a woman. It's not canceled here by any means. It's also a very great safe place for girls to make friends, uh, to learn new skills, to be able to enjoy the out of doors, to learn about vocations and potential careers. 
uh, to learn how to influence well and positively and to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. How many states is American Heritage Girls operating in now? We're in all 50 states, 16 international countries. We have over 60,000 members and we're growing very rapidly. As you can imagine, today's parents are looking for valuable, wholesome um, things for their daughters to be involved. Patty Garibay is the author of the book, Why Curse the Darkness When You Can Light a Candle, which can be found at whycursethedarkness.com. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD reached out to the Girl Scouts of America. We asked if the organization approves of the content from the Eastern Massachusetts branch website, specifically the issues connected to race and sexuality. They did not respond in time for broadcast, but we will update you if we hear back. Coming up, severe weather continues throughout the U.S. Southeastern parts of the country saw heavy flooding and tornadoes. One pharmaceutical factory was destroyed by a tornado in North Carolina. Accusations of racism resulted in country music television pulling a video to a popular song. But critics like South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem are blasting that decision. Get the story when we come back. It's good to have you back. Weather extremes continue throughout the U.S. More tornadoes and floods have hit southeastern areas, causing widespread damage in Kentucky and North Carolina. A pharmaceutical factory in North Carolina was destroyed by a tornado. And today's Cost Temenas has more for us. Heavy rain flooded areas of Kentucky on Wednesday and knocked out power. Graves County, on Kentucky's border with Tennessee, saw a record of over 11 inches of rain. In Mayfield, flooding neared homes and private property. According to Power Outage US, close to 100,000 homes and businesses were without power in western Kentucky. After a series of thunderstorms, knocked down power lines and trees across the area overnight and into Wednesday morning. There were no initial reports of injuries or deaths. In North Carolina on Wednesday, a tornado caused severe damage to a major Pfizer pharmaceutical plant. Large quantities of medicine were tossed about through the storm. According to local authorities, around 50,000 pallets of medicine were damaged. The company said all employees were safe and accounted for. According to the National Weather Service, the damage was consistent with a Category 3 tornado, with wind speeds up to 150 miles per hour. The storm temporarily closed a stretch of Interstate 95 in both directions causing congestion for several miles. Footage shows a tornado heading towards a road in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. It reportedly lasted for about an hour, spanning a distance of 20 miles. Nash County Sheriff's Office reported that six residents of Dorches were treated on scene by paramedics. A further two were transported to a local hospital. Cost MNS, NTD News. You might have noticed some TV shows are off the air, and soon strikes could affect more than that. They could soon make it harder to order packages, take a vacation, 
or enjoy some entertainment. Members of the UPS Teamsters Union are staging practice picket lines as an August first strike looms. UPS says it's ready to up its offer on pay and benefits, and talks are set to resume next week. American Airlines flight attendants are set to vote on a strike authorization this month. Their union is negotiating for an immediate 35% raise, in line with what United, American, and Delta have offered pilots. In Southern California, hotel employees have been staging short-term walkouts over pay and benefits. Broadway workers could go on strike as soon as tomorrow, and Hollywood unions for writers and actors continue to picket. Netflix has seen a surge of new subscribers following the company's global crackdown on password sharing. The company reported nearly 6 million added subscribers in the second quarter. The streaming platform's success marks a change from last year when it lost subscribers throughout two consecutive quarters for the first time in the company's history. Moreover, due to the ongoing Hollywood writers and actors strikes, Netflix says it is set to spend less on streaming content this year. The company reportedly raised its free cash flow forecast from an earlier estimate by $1.5 billion to $5 billion. Its shares are up more than 60% so far this year. The company ended its second quarter with close to 240 million customers. Country music singer Jason Aldean's new single, Try That in a Small Town, has skyrocketed to the top spot on iTunes. This after country music television pulled the song's video this week. That was in response to media outlets claiming it's racist and has pro-gun lyrics. The video portrays violence and lawlessness. It includes real-life scenes of rioters around the country wreaking havoc in the wake of George Floyd's death in 2020. It also shows scenes of protesters spitting at and attacking police officers and convenience stores being ransacked. The song's lyrics challenge those who carjack old ladies, pull guns on store owners, or spit in the face of officers to try that in a small town. The lyrics continue with, see how far you'd make it down the road. Round here, we take care of our own. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem reacted to the controversy. I am shocked by what I'm seeing in this country with people attempting to cancel this song and cancel Jason and um, his beliefs and him and Brittany are outspoken about their love for law and order and for their love of this country. And I'm just grateful for them. I think a lot of times people that go out and and fight every day on these important issues and, and have an opinion and remember the freedom and liberty that this country was founded on get persecuted from it. And we're seeing that with the Aldeans right now. Aldean denies there is any racist intent in his song. He also stressed that the video features real news footage. Aldean says the song refers to the feeling of community, where people take care of their neighbors regardless of different backgrounds or belief. And up next, a young classical pianist is doing what he can to inspire younger generations to value classical music, and he's taken to the streets. We'll have more for you in a moment. Twenty-four years of oppression. This July 20th marks another year of persecution of Falun Gong adherents in China. Must demand that China end this practice. Watch thousands of people commemorating the victims this anniversary. Join us live for NTD's live coverage of the 2023 parade to end the persecution of Falun Gong. 
Welcome back. Many people, especially younger generations today, consider classical music boring. One young classical pianist is passionate about classical music and wants to change that perception. Let's take a look at how he's doing it. Pianist Aurelien Frassa achieved unexpected fame through this impromptu performance of Vivaldi's Concertos, Summer with the Violinist in London's St. Pancras train station. The video went viral on TikTok, garnering 20 million views in just two days. We managed to communicate the focus and the passion to the people around and then to the people on the internet. Frassa fell in love with music at age 12 after watching a movie about Ray Charles. I was obsessed with his music. I, uh, so yeah, after I asked my parents to, to buy a little piano for me and uh, he starts from there. And after I found some teachers that gave me even more passion. Frassa especially appreciates classical music's unique ability to express emotions. Like, uh, proteins or sugar, but some, uh, some type of food will be more refined and give you the same ingredients, but with more taste, you know? So I feel like uh, all the music, they express the same emotions, but classical music does it, uh, in my, in my uh, opinion, uh, in a way that is more refined. But Frassa understood that many people perceive classical music differently. Classical music is perceived in a way that is a bit academic, a bit boring, and a bit stuck up. So my goal is to present classical music in a new way, so much more spontaneous. So after graduating from the Paris National Conservatory, Frissat decided not to pursue a typical pianist career. I didn't want to just have a life that would be like too um, predictable, you know, like just find a, a job in a music school and teach in the music school. I, I, wanted, I wanted something more, but I didn't know what. After taking a break for a few years, Farsad began playing classical music on pianos in the streets. Since then, his lively street performances of classical music have won over 1.8 million followers and 45 million likes on TikTok. What I want is to convey the musical message behind, and even if the piano is bad, you can still convey these emotions. His advice to young musicians is, don't let your teacher's paths limit your career. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. That's some impressive playing. And that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at NTD.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.